This is uh, the second lesson in the book of Revelation, our study that I've entitled The Glory of Christ Revealed. As we mentioned last time, <clears throat> and by the way, this is still introductory. I promise you next week we will get into the verses, but as I mentioned last time, we didn't really finish some introductory material last time, who, or, which is extremely important for the book of Revelation. And so to back up, review a little, we mentioned that the book of Revelation is a book of 66 in the books of the Bible, and that the Bible is a collection of books, but yet it's also one book, one story, written by one author. You know, even though he used over 40 men um, to do the 66 books, God himself revealed himself through the scriptures. And we talked about how a book or a story has many elements, but no one element is more important than the end. Um, Bruce didn't want to share this last time because he's being nice. But, you know, the recent Iron Bowl proved how important the very end can be. So, uh, you know, the end of a story is the most, there's no part of a story more important than the end. Oftentimes, I think the book of Revelation gets ignored or misunderstood. Like, think of it this way. What if you understood all the scriptures, all 65 books, but you had no knowledge at all of the book of Revelation? I mean, how important is that? And how important is the book of Revelation, and yet how is it treated, in, especially in American Christianity? Like, how is it ignored, or how is it abused, or how is it um, mistreated? Like, have y'all gotten mail-outs before trying to get you to come down to Anniston City Meeting Center because they're going to do a big class on prophecy? Well, I mean... I'm not doubting the spiritual purpose of those things, but primarily it's to sell something. And so to bring out, if we can't know when he's coming, you don't study the book of Revelation and try to figure that out. But yet, it is confusing. It is complex. I'm not trying to say, I mean, many of you made the comments last time about after we finished about how confusing and complex it is and how it really is a challenge, and yet I don't know that it's meant to be so. Like, um, when you think about the book of Revelation, if you ask the people who watch all these shows on TV, ask them, what's the main topic? What's the subject of the book? What's the main theme? What would they say? They'd probably talk about, well, end times, Armageddon, end of the world, stuff like that. And yet, what does the book say about itself as the main topic it's Jesus Christ it's very clear you know the very first verse tells us immediately that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and what's the main theme in the very beginning it tells us that too what that he's coming he's coming in the clouds and that's that's the point of the book um, you know I don't know if I mentioned this before, but um, polls of American Christians that have been asked, what book of the Bible would you like to most study? You know which book is number one? Revelation. Why? 
because we don't understand it. And yet polls of pastors ask, which book of the Bible are you most reluctant to teach? Number one is the book of Revelation. Why? Because we don't understand it either. So, you know, the point is everybody has the same opinion of Revelation because we don't understand it. And I just don't think that that's necessarily a mandate of the book. I think it can be understood. I, now, I'm not trying to stand up here and tell y'all I've got it figured out. Please don't take what I'm saying, what I'm saying now the wrong way. I'm just saying that I think we, we being men, have made the book complicated. We've made it more complicated and misunderstood than necessary. You know, it, it's full of many, many treasures that are obvious that we just missed. And yet, as we pointed out last time, it ends with a curse. That if you take away from it or add to it, you'll be cursed. And it begins with a blessing that says, blessed are those who read, who hear, and who heed the book. Chapter 1, verse 3. So we can't ignore it. And I'll tell you another thing that's interesting about the book of Revelation, comparing it to other books. What's probably the most famous book of prophecy in the Old Testament? Daniel. And yet, if you look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, which is in the last chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So Daniel, at the close of his vision, is told by God to what? Seal the book up. And yet, look at the end of Revelation. If you look at Revelation 22, verse 10, what's John told about the book of Revelation? He said, do not seal up the book. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. You see the contrast there? So, if there's a book that maybe we shouldn't try to figure out in some ways, it's the book of Daniel. I'm not saying that's true, but in no way should we take that approach on Revelation because it's not sealed. It's not concealed. It's been opened up and revealed. That's what Revelation means. That's what the word, the very first word in the book, Apocalypse, means is to uncover, to unveil, to reveal something that was previously hidden. Okay, now back to finishing up considerations. These are the foundations we have to lay to understand the book. Before we just jump into the book of Revelation, we've got to try to get our mindsets off the presuppositions and all the bad teaching that I've had anyway over many years about it and um, think about what are considerations that we have to lay down before we study the book of Revelation. Well, last time we talked about the first consideration being the genre or the type of writing it is. And we talked about that Revelation has many different styles or types of literature in it. Epistolary, it's a letter. Obviously, it's a letter in general to the churches, but it also contains seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is southwestern Turkey today. It's doctrinal. It's historical narrative. It's got poetry and songs like the hymns to God in chapters 4 and 5. And obviously it's prophetical. The book itself says it's a prophecy, chapter 1, verse 3. And it's apocalyptic. 
And as we talked about before, the word apocalyptic today implies catastrophic or chaotic end of the world destruction. That's not what it should mean. It just means unveiling of what is hidden in a clear way such that it provides warning or instruction or encouragement. So here's a summary I wrote. The genre of Revelation is an apocalyptic and prophetic epistle with other types included. So it is an epistle, it is a letter written to the churches and to the church, which includes us, and it is prophetic and apocalyptic in nature. It does have other types, but those, that's the main genre for us to bear in mind as we go through it. Number two is, and I don't know if y'all can see this in the back, I, I really didn't know how to gauge the size of the screen, but um, the literary genre, of course, is uh, number one of contextual considerations. Number two is the literal context. We mentioned that last time. And I know I babbled around and didn't explain that there can be two different types of being literal. One is plain literal, where you just plainly take the words literally, and the other is figurative literal. And we mentioned the example of the lamb before the throne. Historical context, talked about that, the cultural, social, political, spiritual atmosphere of the churches at the time that were the original recipients of the letter. The biblical context, always let scripture interpret scripture. No part of Revelation should violate any part of the rest of the Bible. No part of the Bible should violate Revelation. And then the symbolic context, symbols, signs, and numbers are throughout the book, and uh, they're significant. They're not always as symbolic as we may think they are, but they're significant. But this brings us to the next consideration, which is the hermeneutic approach. And this is where I want to spend a little bit of time because I think this is very, very important to understand in the book. There are four main approaches to how we interpret Revelation. Hermeneutics is a theological word you've probably heard. All it means is your interpretive approach, how you approach interpreting a passage of Scripture. Well, there are four main ways that people, it's a grid that people have when they come in the book of Revelation. If you, if you watch the news with a grid of looking for a way to make a certain political leader look bad, you'll find, you'll find that. If you watch the news looking for a way to make a political leader look good, you'll probably find that. You see what I'm saying? We bring grids and we bring approaches to the way we view things as we interpret them. That's not to say that we aren't fair with our interpretation, but nonetheless, we, we have different approaches. There, the four main approaches to how people interpret the book of Revelation are number one, preterist. Preterist is from a Latin word which literally means gone by. All right, I don't know if y'all have ever heard that word, but that's a very common interpretive approach to the book of Revelation. And what that means is they view Revelation as a historical record that primarily occurred in terms of everything in the book. A strict preterist view interprets everything in the book as having been fulfilled by 70 A.D., which what happened in 70 A.D.? The, the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. 
Then there's another preterist approach, which views some as occurring by 70 A.D. and the rest of the book being fulfilled by 476 A.D., which is when the Roman Empire eventually totally fell. So that view requires the writing of the book to have been done prior to 70 A.D., which is a key element to consider, and it basically means that all the woes and the wrath is focused primarily upon unbelieving Israel rather than the whole world. So I think those are flaws with that approach. Number two approach is historicist. And by the way, the preterist you could call a past approach. Number two is the historicist approach. And by the way, I'll mention this to y'all. Um, I know it's helpful for me to write notes too. But if you miss something, I'm going to post notes with every message too. Like last week, if you go online, the PDF, which is a lot more detail than we can cover in the class, it's on there. And same thing this week. Because remember last time, we talked about what are the three universally agreed upon concepts. That there is a literal, visible return of Christ. Number two, that there will be a bodily resurrection of all people, believers and unbelievers. And number three, that there will be a final judgment of all people. And on all these things, there's a lot of different, I mean, I've, I've boiled it down to four categories, but as Bruce is implying, you can chase a million different viewpoints. Number two, historicist. We could call that the present view, even though it's got the word history in it. It views the book of Revelation as a sweep of church history. This was very popular view of the reformers because they had such disdain for the papacy, for the, for the Roman church popes, that they viewed most of the book of Revelation as a sweep of church history from the first century to the present, which at that time was, you know, the 16th century, but now would be the 21st century. And what that means is it's primarily a westernized view. It ignores the rest of the world primarily because it's just looking at events like the invasion of the Christianized Roman Empire by the Goths and the Muslims, the corruption of the medieval papacy, the reign of Charlemagne, the Protestant Reformation, uh, the French Revolution, even the destructions brought about by Napoleon and Hitler. Those are fulfillments of the things prophesied in the book of Revelation. That's what the historicist view says. And of course, a limitation of that view is is primarily good for the Western world. And number two, I just don't know where they get that. Number three is idealist, and I'd call that a timeless view. Uh, this views Revelation being fulfilled symbolically as a timeless struggle played out in age after age, conflict between good and evil being repeated over and over. It's a cycle where, like, you have the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, you know, and those are cycles of the same thing going over and over. They're different camera angles of this age-old conflict between God and Satan. Like, like the conflict we're having today, what conflict they had last century and the century before. It's, it's a repetitive cycle of symbolic... Well, now, they, they hold to a, a literal return of Christ. Yeah, after that. But, but it... Admittedly, it doesn't, a classic idealist view doesn't result in a, 
in a distinct consummation of the age. The consummation is the return of Christ. And number four is the futurist view, which, you know, you have past, present, timeless, future. Futurist view. It views the book of Revelation, especially from chapter four on, as predictions of people and events to come in the future. And under that category, there are two main categories. One is the dispensational view, which is also called an extreme view of futurism, which views everything in the book as being futuristic. Like even the letters to the churches, some would take an extreme position that that's referring to seven church ages. And then another view of that is a progressive or modified or moderate view of futurism, which doesn't require things to be as literal and as exact in sequence, but nonetheless, the book is futuristic. All the events are prophecies and predictions of future people and future events to come. And please note, as Bruce alluded to, not everybody fits into these categories real neatly. Well, I do think that, like even if you look at John himself, it's not contradictory to say that if you look at parts of the book, there are parts of the book where John is being preterist, he's being historicist, he's being idealist, and he's being futuristic. And so I do think there's merit to all the views, but the problem comes in if you apply one view to every verse in the book. Like Bruce mentioned about if you take extreme preterism view, you deny the second coming of Christ. And, and I think that's why I'm, I don't want this to become scholastic in here uh, because I know that's, we're here for life change. But, but the point is we've got to think through these things. I mean, it does take a little bit of effort and brain power. Like Bruce is saying, when you go through this, we have to think, all right, what is the interpretive approach I should have for this text to end up getting the plain meaning of this text because it translates into our eschatology. Eschatology is a big word that simply means end times, the study of end times. That's all that word means is the study of end times. And so four main views, well, three main categories, four main views of the millennium. Now this is that dirty word that always brings up controversy, but the word millennium is used six times in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, and it simply means thousand years. So it's a thousand-year term, and the different views of the millennium determine what are called eschatological positions. So if somebody says, What's your eschatology? You know, they're not asking about your heritage. They want to know, are you amillennial, postmillennial, or premillennial? And those are the three main categories. What does that mean? First of all, amillennial. By the way, I, I want to be sure I go slow. And if anybody has a question, if I'm unclear about something, stop me and say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't understand what you just said, or you didn't explain that term because I may, because I am immersed in this and I may slip out something that um, needs to be explained. Amillennial, the prefix ah means no. So amillennialism means what? 
no millennium. So an amillennialist believes that there will be no literal, future, earthly, thousand-year reign of Christ. The kingdom is spiritual in nature, presently being fulfilled as Christ reigns in heaven and in the hearts of his people on earth. And the thousand years is seen as symbolic of a long period of time during this current age. And so at the end of this current age, the resurrection of all people, uh, believers and unbelievers, occurs when Christ returns. And then immediately thereafter is the beginning of the eternal state. So there is no tribulation. There is no, well, the tribulation is just a difficult time at the end of the current age. But there is no seven-year tribulation. And then there's the resurrection of all people and the beginning of the eternal state. Most views that are amillennial are seen as very realistic about the state of conditions of the church and the trend. Like in other words, realistic as opposed to being pessimistic or optimistic. And that'll be more clear in the next two. Modern day amillennialists are usually idealist in their interpretive method. If you go back to what I just taught. In other words, they see most things as cyclical. But some can be preterist or even historicist in their view of Revelation. Number two, post-millennial. Prefix post meaning after or following. So a post-millennialist believes what about Christ's return? That Christ returns after the millennium. So you have Christ millennium occurring as a golden age, and they don't believe it's a literal thousand years. They believe it's a golden age on earth where things get better and better as the church advances the gospel and it ushers in a great age of spiritual victory that culminates with the return of Christ at the end of that point and again, the resurrection of all people, the resurrection of unbelievers and believers, and then the eternal state starts. So, you see, that view, instead of being realistic about the church and the world, is what? It's very optimistic because it's saying things are going to continue to get better and better and better until a golden age is ushered in. And, and so God's glory is brought upon the earth by the advancement of the gospel through the church. So post-millennialists can be preterist. Many of the past were historicists and some were even idealists. Third, premillennial. Prefix pre meaning before. And that teaches Christ will return to earth and usher in a literal thousand-year reign. So he comes before the millennium, and there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth that's called the millennial kingdom. Two main subcategories, historic or classic premillennialism and pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism. Historic premillennialism is called that because it dates from the earliest records of the church. Uh, in fact, Justin Martyr wrote a statement about the book of Revelation in A.D. 130 that indicated he believed in a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. Um, so it's a very old view. It teaches the present church age will continue until at the, near the end a time of great tribulation will occur. And that is not the tribulation. Historic premillennialism doesn't believe in the seven-year tribulation, but just a time of tribulation at the end. Then the millennial kingdom, Christ returns, millennial kingdom 
begins. Believers are, are resurrected at the beginning of the millennium. Unbelievers at the end. You see the difference between amillennial and postmillennial there. There's two resurrections. Pre-tribulational millennial, premillennialism gained widespread, widespread popularity in the 19th, 20th centuries. And it's very popular in America today. View teaches that Christ will return not only before the millennium, but also before a seven-year tribulation time to rapture his believers out of the great tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, he will return with his resurrected saints to establish rule and reign upon the earth for a literal thousand years. Um, so both of these views can be seen as not realistic, not optimistic, but what? pessimistic about the church that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and that Christ will have to come and obtain the victory which the other views say that's unfair to imply the other views don't see that too but it's not through the church it's through a miraculous second coming um, that's really that's really a difficult question because I think in terms of quantity most people may argue that there have been more amillennialist than anything oh, really? yeah but um but like during the reformation there were more post-millennial like uh uh jonathan edwards was post-millennial yeah. yeah put it this way in america <laughs> in the christian church in america today by far the most popular view is the last yeah. and it's also speculative because like how, how good are the records of the first century yeah. Yeah. and we we will get into a lot more about this obviously as we approach chapter 20 because chapter 20 is the, that's where you got to deal with a millennium. Whether there is not a millennium, or whether Christ comes before the millennium or after millennium. Other considerations, the author, in the interest of time, I invite you to read the notes. I don't know why there's any controversy about who the author of the book of Revelation is. I mean, but there is some controversy. But among Bible-believing scholars, just take my word for it. It was the apostle of John. Take his word for it. In chapter 1, verse 1, verse 4, verse 9, chapter 22, verse 8, he identifies himself as John. And it's understood that no further explanation was needed. Irenaeus, who wrote about it, who knew Polycarp, who was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John, said John wrote it. So, anyway, uh, next item is the date. And this goes back, again, you can read the notes. But there's a lot of discussion about an early date being under Nero, which would be about A.D. 68. But the church has traditionally held, and all the weight of scholarship holds to an A.D. 96 or so date, the later date. There's an early date, later date. Later date being under the emperor Domitian instead of Nero. And there are lots of reasons for that, but I think what's important is to remember this, that A.D. 96 date precludes a complete preterist view of everything because A.D. 70 has already happened. Number two, the 96 date means it's the last book of the canon. That's, and that's really where I think the big argument came from. Um, and then last consideration is the structure outline. You know, being an engineer and a nerd, I have to try to get an outline going of things, and this book is a very frustrating book to outline.
The only outline you can come up with is what's inherent in the book itself. And that is Revelation 1, 1 through 8 is a prologue or introduction. And then the epilogue or benediction is Revelation 22, 10 to 21. And everything in between is the body. I mean, that's a pretty broad outline is to say you got an introduction, a body, and a benediction. But there's also an inherent outline in chapter 1, verse 19. If you look at that, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, John is told, Therefore write the things which you have seen, number one, the things which are, number two, and the things which will take place after these things. So that's another inherent outline. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. And then, of course, other outlines are the uh, four visions that start in those four locations and then four series, the sevens, seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and then the judgment, triumph, and consummation. But anyway, because we're running out of time, I don't want all this to just be like a class and y'all think, I get enough of this at school. I want us to leave with some um, ideas to take away for application. I don't have time to develop all the thoughts about the kingdom of God. But as I started off by saying, the Bible is the story of God himself. It's his autobiography. Another way to look at it from our perspective is that it's a book of his covenants with us the plan of redemption, the story of salvation. And another way to even label that is that it's the story of the kingdom of God. In uh, Systematic Theology by John Frame, he talks about how the kingdom can be seen as a dynamic, not just as a static thing. You know, when we hear the term kingdom, we think of a rule or reign that's geographical or has certain limits of scope, like, say, the British Empire. You know, it covered the globe. The sun never set on the British Empire. The kingdom of God is one that is more dynamic than that. Listen to this quote. To him, Christ, the kingdom exists there. Not merely where God is supreme, for that is true at all times and under all circumstances, but where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers, and brings men to the willing recognition of the same. What is that saying? That's just saying that God's kingdom is most seen when God's supreme rule is most in effect. Is there ever a time when God's not supreme and sovereign? No. That's always the case. But is the kingdom, why would he instruct us to pray, thy kingdom come? Think about it. After the fall and after sin came into the world, God could have reestablished his kingdom totally and completely in an instant. But yet so far he's taken 6,000 years. So we look back and we look forward. And as I've said many times, I believe a gospel faith is not only a faith that looks back to what God has done in the incarnation the life, the death, the burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, but even more so, or equal to that, at least, is that the gospel is a faith that looks forward. Looks forward to the consummation of all things, the return of Christ, 
to us being with Him in glory, to us being resurrected bodily and being with Him forever and ever. So based on the Bible, we live both in this age and the age to come. That may seem confusing. Christ said in Matthew 12, 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So see, he identified this age and the age to come. Ephesians 1, 21 said, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Galatians 1, 4 says it's this present evil age. Unbelievers are caught up in the affairs of this age. And 1 Timothy even warns of believers being rich in this present age. So the present age is evil. The age to come is one of consummation and spiritual victory. That brings up a concept called the already but not yet. I don't know if y'all ever heard that. But to me, this is a big clue to interpreting Revelation. I know... Uh, those of y'all that know me well know I'm a weirdo about truths and tension. You know, the Bible is full of truths and tension. God is sovereign, and yet man's responsible. No one comes to the Father except he draws him to him. And yet, except you believe you'll, be doomed, you'll doom yourself to hell. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, you can go back and forth all day long. You know, Christ is fully God. Christ is fully man. They're truths in tension. I believe that when it comes to end times and prophecies, that there is a sense in which, especially relative to the kingdom of God, there is an already and a not yet. Like, the kingdom is here, right? I mean, Christ said that. Um, the kingdom is here. Satan is defeated. And I know some of you are thinking, okay, well, now he's referring to Satan being bound. But there's also a sense in which he's certainly not bound, right? So the point is, which is it? Well, it's already. It's not yet. Think of it this way. In World War II, D-Day, when D-Day happened and the Allies finally penetrated back into Central Europe, France, the end of the Third Reich was, it was over, right? I mean, it was over. The rest of the war was just wrapping up the details. There was still a lot of struggle, a lot of conflict, a lot of lives lost. But D-Day meant V-Day, Victory Day, was certain. Victory Day being when the Germans surrendered. Well, see, Christ's first coming is D-Day. So it's over. You know, the victory's won. The kingdom has come. And yet, V-Day... The second coming is coming. But the first coming has guaranteed the second coming. You see what I'm getting at? I mean, D-Day meant V-Day was coming. And there's no way Germans could stop it. It was over. Christ's coming means Satan is defeated. And there is no stopping it. And yet, we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. So, What's my application? If you're more preterist or idealistic in your approach, or you may be more post-millennial or all-millennial, then you may tend to focus too much on the already and not enough on the not yet. If you're more futuristic or premillennial in your approach, 
then a danger is that we can focus too much on the not yet and miss the already. You see what I'm trying to say? Now, I'm not trying to say that there's not definitive interpretation to be gained here. But I'm just saying we need to be careful. We need to be very careful because I do not think, I know I've said this before, I'm going to say it one more time. I just do not think God gave us this book to confuse us. And I think God gives us prophecy for life application. Just to wrap up, because I know we're out of time, here's five points of application. Practical reasons why we have prophecy. Prophecy is very practical. It's very purposeful. It's not just to confuse us. Number one, it gives us a sense of priorities. Christ coming again prioritizes our lives and orders it. Our priority, nothing is a greater priority than being ready for Christ to return. Nothing. Number two, it purifies us. Whoever has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Focusing on the second coming will make us holy, will make us more obedient. Number three, it gives us purpose. It encourages us to find real meaning and purpose in this life, focusing on things that are eternal. What does it really matter about what goes wrong at work tomorrow if you're focused on the eternal, what we're going to be doing with Christ 10,000 years. Like, like tomorrow, at some point in the day, just tell yourself, well, 10,000 years from now, what will this matter? Okay? Number four, preparation. He's coming like a thief in the night. So if you know a thief is coming to rob your house, what are you going to do? You're going to be ready. Well, he's coming, and he's coming like a thief in the night at a time that we do not. So we better be prepared. And that, so we live a life of preparation. And last, payment. He's coming, and he's bringing his reward with him. We don't like to talk about this because it seems egotistical and personal. But there are levels of reward in the Scripture. And there are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. And one of them is the crown of righteousness that Paul mentioned in his closing letter, 2 Timothy, that's reserved not only for him. You know, when he said, I've finished the fight, I've run the race, you know, he's wrapping up his ministry. And he said, there's reserved for me in heaven the crown of righteousness, righteousness, and not only for me, but for all those who love his appearing. So the eager anticipation of Christ coming back brings a crown of righteousness back to the purity approach. And you say, well, that's egotistical. If we're just working to get what we get out of it. But why do we have rewards? Why do we have crowns in heaven? Are they for us? No. We're going to be worshiping somebody for eternity. What are you going to do? Like you can bring a gift today and offer a temporal, physical gift in worship to the Lord today. But what are you going to offer to the Lord there? If you have no crowns, if you have no rewards. You see what I'm saying? Let's read, let's hear, let's study, let's believe, let's heed the words of Revelation because they are practical. They can arrange our priorities. They can purify us. They can give our life purpose. They can help us prepare for His second coming and receive the payment that we want to have to bring glory to His name.